0: Take you up. For the rest of us in here, we are going to be um, in Ephesians, and in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, we're going to be starting there. We've, we've already gone through chapter 1, we've seen Paul's introduction, we've seen uh, his, his doxology where he just jumps into, uh, where, where he can't help but praise and sing the praises of the wonders of his salvation in that longest sentence in all of Scripture. And then as we've seen the last two weeks, we see Paul's prayer and thanksgiving. Uh, for the Ephesians. This morning what we're going to see is we're going to see Paul remind the Ephesians, remind them of, of the incredible work that Christ has done in them. Let's, let's look to it now, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that you would feed us here as we come to your word. Oh, would you help us to see with open eyes the wonders of your incredible grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, just this past week, I don't know if you ever do this, like just scrolling through, and I can't remember if it was Instagram or Facebook, and, and as I was doing that, sometimes there's these videos that just kind of autoplay in the background, and, and sometimes they just like catch your attention. You're like, what's going on there? And, and there was somebody, and they took out a Dremel, you know, one of those little uh, power tools, miniature power tools, and they had an egg, and they cut the egg all the way around until it fell into two and dumped the yolk out and then began to do the most intricate work on that top half of that egg. And it was I was just sitting there, you know, it's like, why am I sitting here watching them do this? But I, I just get brought in as I'm wondering, what in the world are they doing with this egg as they just turn it into this most, this beautiful piece of artwork? I think often we, 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 we like this idea of before and after. Do you know what I mean? You know, maybe you watch the, the shows about the do-overs of a home, or a room in a home, or, or a restaurant that gets made over, or a, a business that gets made over. The, this idea of before and after is very attractive to us, and it kind of draws us draws us in. Um, we, we like this idea of seeing something that is plain and ordinary, or something that is just downright awful, and see it turned into something wonderful. There's just something about it it just kind of draws our attention. And it's that before and after that, that Paul is bringing to us this morning. He he wants the Ephesians to truly understand their story. And to truly understand their story, they need to understand the before of their story and the after of their story. And he starts off with the before of their story, doesn't he? Verses 1 through 3, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does Paul tell the Ephesians? He speaks to them, and he speaks quite boldly here, doesn't he? What does he tell them about themselves? He says, you were dead. Now, we hear that. We, we don't like that kind of language, do we? <laughs> we don't like it. it. It seems too strong. Even as we think about our life maybe before Christ, we, we don't like the idea of thinking that we were really dead. I, I love the illustration, and you've heard me use it before, maybe of Princess Bride. You remember Wesley? He's seemingly dead, and they bring him to Miracle Max, and what does Miracle Max say? It just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. Thank you. Thank you. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive, right? With all dead, there's only one thing that you can do. What is that? Go through his clothes and look for change, right? So, and we have this idea that, that in life and even in spiritual life that, that, that there's mostly dead and all dead. And, and we like to think that before Christ, we were just mostly dead. We were just partially dead, but not fully dead. But Paul wants the Ephesians to know, and I think us this morning, to know that we are all born dead, spiritually dead. Since the beginning, you remember what God told Adam in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Literally, he says, you shall die, die. He wants to make it clear, you're really going to die. And then we see what happens with with Adam and Eve. They eat of the fruit, and what happens to them? We want to say for a moment, but they didn't really die, did they? But they did. Spiritually, at that moment, they they suffered death. That's why shame entered into the world at that moment. They recognized that they were naked, and, and they flee from God. As Paul says in Romans 5, therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, since Genesis 3, since the original sin, we're all born dead. We're born as the, let's be honest, we're born, it's kind of weird, we're born as the walking dead though, right? We're born almost like zombies. You know, we're still able to walk around, we're still able to talk, but yet at the same time, what does Paul say? That we're dead spiritually. We've suffered death. And as I was thinking about this this week, I, I thought of an old gospel illustration. Many of you, you may have, in fact, even tried to use this before as an illustration. It's, it's called the bridge illustration. I want to put, put up the first uh, picture up here. And, and this is what's used is, okay, on, on the left-hand side, that's us, right, in our sin uh, and broken. And then on the other side is God and his perfect holiness. And what's separating us is this cavern that, that there's no way that we could ever get across, right? And that's how we hear it. And, and what I was wondering is like, does anybody interpret this according to what Ephesians 2 is really saying here? I was looking for all sorts of pictures and I couldn't. I just found ones like this. But of course what happens, go to the next slide, is Jesus comes into the picture, right? And what are you able to do now? You're able to walk over and you're able to walk to God, but what is wrong with this picture? You see us over there on the left-hand side? What are we doing? It's like we're smiling, we're, we're happy. You know, sometimes I think we have this idea that, that, that before Christ, what were we doing? We were like sitting around waiting on God. God, when are you coming? You know, it's like we're tapping our watch. And, and we're just waiting for him so that we can say, yeah, yeah, we're just waiting for you so that we can get across. That is not the picture that Paul draws here, is he? This illustration should have us what? Lying down dead on the left-hand side. Or, I mean, I guess if it painted us as zombies, that would also be appropriate. But <laughs> well, we wouldn't like that so much. That wouldn't be quite as fitting in our circles, right? We, we don't like to think in those ways. But, but that, that, that's really what, what's going on here. And Paul goes on in our passage this morning. Verse 2, he, he describes what, what this looks like in verse 2. What does he say? He says, what, what are we, we're in our trespasses and uh, sins. I'm sorry, verse 1. Uh, in trespasses and sins in which we once walked. What does it look like to be these spiritual zombies? What does it look like to be dead? It looks like us living out our trespasses and sins, living in rebellion to God, constantly trespassing. You know, it's the the idea of trespassing. Trespassing is going somewhere where you're not supposed to go. And isn't that what we do? We just, you know, here's God's line. What does Paul say we were doing in verse 1? He says we just keep going. We just keep going back across. And here's the wonder of it. You and I, how were we created? We were created in the image of the great God, created to worship him. And what, is, what do we do when we're spiritually dead? We find ourselves spitting in the face of the one who created us. Let's understand it for what it really is, and that's what it really is, is us spitting in the face of our wonderful God. Paul says it looks like it comes, comes out in three different ways. Verse 2, he says, "What well, we, we follow the course of this world. Now, we want to be careful here as we think about the world. Sometimes we just think like everything, like everything in the world is bad. That's not what Paul is saying. He's talking about the, the evil systems of this world, the sinful systems of this world. And, and, and he says we follow them and we run after them. And you and I, we see the evil in this world. We saw it just this past week with the terrible shooting of those young children. We, we see how evil has, has just infiltrated our world, as people run after following the systems of this world, but not just following the, the systems of this world. Also, verse 2, what? Following the prince of the power of the air. We're spiritually dead. Who are we following? We're following Satan himself, the evil one himself. And those who find themselves still spiritually dead, what are they, who are they following? They're continuing to follow, as sons of disobedience, continuing to follow the evil, the evil one. In verse 3, Paul tells us it's not just the world. It's not just Satan. We can't just point outside of ourselves, right? Where does he also point? He also points inside of ourselves. He says, where does this come out of? He says, in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind. The, the passions of our flesh. The, the King James uh, translated it, uh, the lust of the flesh. And, and sometimes we kind of get from that, or maybe even the passions of the flesh that we have here, that it's just physical in nature what Paul's talking about, but he's not. He's not talking about just physical things. The, this word that's translated here before us is passions, what it really means is when we over-desire something. That's what's behind that word passions. It's to over-desire the things of the flesh, to have an inordinate desire. In other words, it's not just a desire of bad things, okay? And that's somehow, sometimes how we think of it. It's just a, uh, a desire of bad things. It's also an inordinate desire of what? Of good things. And isn't that what we're able to do? What do we, what, what do we often manage to do? We, end, uh, we manage to take the best things in this world Things that we, we should rightly be concerned about, and what do we do? We turn them into idols. We turn them into things to be worshiped because we over, begin to over, over desire them. You can think of illustrations. It could be your work. Work is a good thing. We were made to work. But what can we do? We can turn that work, we can have an over desire with regards to it, and it can become an idol. It can happen within the context of our family, our relationships. It's it's all over the place. It's all encompassing. And and Paul says your problem isn't just the world. Your problem isn't just Satan's work in our world. Your problem comes from within. As you over-desire things, as you have this propensity to set up idols where there were meant to be none. Now, I don't know if you saw it in verse 3, but Paul said something amazing and astounding that we, we need to come back to. Because as he starts out in chapter two, what he's talking about is he's he's telling the Ephesians who they were, right? He's saying, You, Ephesians, you were dead. This is this is you, you were in trespass and sin, but then what does he say at the beginning of verse three? Among whom we all once lived. Paul's saying what? He's saying, I too. I, Paul, was once dead too, just like you, Gentile Ephesians. Now, what were the, the, the Ephesians doing? They were, what did their trespasses and sins look like? It looked like lawlessness, right? They were pursuing all sorts of crazy worldliness stuff. Sorcery, whatnot. You, you can, we can go through a long list. They were doing everything that they could to gratify their flesh. And yet, what, what Paul says is, I too was in rebellion. Rebellion. I, too, was in rebellion and trespasses. I, 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 too, was pursuing the passions of my flesh. But what did Paul's pursuing the passions of the flesh look like? It looked like keeping the law, didn't it? You have the Ephesians. They were being, like, as bad as they possibly could be. And Paul over here, he was being as good as he possibly could be. And what does Paul say about himself? He says we were both really the same. You and your lawlessness, me and my law keeping, we were both just as dead. Just as much pursuing the passions of our flesh. And as a result, as a result, were by nature children of wrath. You see, it comes with an incredible consequence. And we don't like to think about that consequence, do we? And this is true of all. By by nature, we're all by nature children of wrath. Rightly deserving wrath. Rightly deserving God's displeasure. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, as Christians, we are comforted by the thought that if God is for us, then who can be against us? But what if the reverse is the truth? What if God is not for us? What if God is against us? Then it matters little who is for us. We are in eternal danger. That is what Paul means when he says that we are by nature children of wrath. As Paul says elsewhere, all have sinned, right? Right? All fall short of the glory of God. And what are the wages of sin? The wages of sin are, is death. Wages of sin is death. We're all born enemies of God. (laughs) These these spiritual zombies opposed to him. Rightly deserving his wrath. And I I know this is all very negative. We don't like to think about that. We we prefer to just think about the positives that we're going to talk about in a moment, right? But we must understand the before in order to understand the after. If you don't understand who you were before Christ came into the picture, you will never understand the wonders of what Christ has done for you. I've quoted from him before. Jack Miller has gone on to be with the Lord. He was famous for saying this. He's saying, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. Cheer up. Folks, we need to understand that that's good news for us who are in Christ. We need to understand that we really were that bad, that we were dead in our sins, but our problem is sometimes we think that we weren't that bad. You know, we we think, remember, we think we were just mostly dead, not dead dead, not all dead. We like to think we were just mostly dead. And if we don't understand how bad we really were, if we don't understand how dead we really are, then we can never understand how incredible grace really is. One other thing I think is important here is we think about being dead. And I think we kind of have this problem sometimes. Do you ever find yourself being mad at dead people because they're dead? Seems silly, doesn't it? But sometimes we get mad at lost people because they're dead. We get upset at them. We, we've, come on, I've shared it with you over and over again, and, and we get all upset at them. And we don't understand how radical this really is. We of all people who have been shown such incredible mercy and grace when we were dead should understand how to have incredible patience as we talk to those who are spiritually dead. Cheer up, Jack Miller said, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared dream of, but cheer up also. You're more loved than you ever dared hope for. We need to understand the before, but we must also understand the after. And as we we move to the after, something I haven't said yet, as we move to verse 4, is in your translation right there in front of you, um, it may be multiple, it's probably multiple sentences. But actually, verses one through seven, it's all one sentence. This is another one of Paul's like really long sentences. And you know what's really cool about it as we look at it is he hasn't gotten to the main subject of his sentence. Paul hasn't yet gotten to the main verb of his sentence. I'm about to read it, I want you to look out. For the subject and the verb, and no, this is an English class. We're not gonna diagram sentences or anything, but this is really important that we understand what Paul's saying. He's just now he he's just now getting to the main subject of his sentence and the main verb. Let's hear it. But God. Did you hear the main subject? Did you hear it? But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Have you heard the verb? Have you heard the main verb? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God here enters the hero into the story. We're we're laying, if we were to go back to that illustration, we're laying over there on the left hand side. We're laying over there dead. And what happens? God enters into the story. He enters in, the the only hero, the the only one that could possibly resurrect us from the dead, comes in. And what does he do? Paul says he made us alive. He made alive those who are dead in their trespasses. Here it's helpful, and I always think, and I I can't help but go there of of thinking of Lazarus, because it's such a good illustration at this moment. And we talked about it back at, at Palm Sunday. And Just think about that day. Lazarus is in the tomb. He's dead. He's been there multiple days. His sister is worried about moving away the stone because why? Because he stinketh, the King James Version says. Okay? Let's understand the seriousness. Lazarus is dead. Not mostly dead. All dead. Right? Dead, dead. And what happens? Jesus speaks. And what does he say? Lazarus. Come out. Now it's here at this moment that we say, well, how did Lazarus come out? I mean, was he just mostly dead so he could hear Jesus? No, there's something incredible that happens at this moment. Lazarus is creator. His great God speaks to him and, and he can't. And transforms him and brings him back to life through the power of his words, through the, the, those same powerful words that created everything that ever has been. Speaks words, and what happens? Lazarus. Lazarus is called. He he comes back to life. He who was fully, completely, totally dead is resurrected from the dead. And what Paul wants us to see this morning is, is that what Jesus did for Lazarus physically, he does for you and I spiritually. We were laying over there and we were dead. And if you're in Christ this morning, what did Christ do? He called out to you. And he called out with powerful words. Powerful words that went forth from him and brought you back to life. Do you understand how radical that is? That that he brought new life to us, regenerated our dead hearts. By grace, Paul says, you have been saved. He reminds us of what? He reminds us of the reason. He's breathed new life into those of us who are spiritually dead. Why? And it's by grace, it's out of his grace that he does this. In other words, God doesn't suddenly step into the picture and decide he's going to be gracious. That's not the picture here. And he's certainly not responding to the cry and the call for mercy From the people on the other side of the cliff. Instead, what does Paul say in verses four and five? Paul instead says, "Because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you see, he's made you alive because he set his love on you, even when what? When you were dead." Even when you were dead, Paul says, he set his love upon you. Why? Because he is the great God of mercy and grace. It's who he is, it's his, in his very character. And so while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. You see, everything turns on that incredible phrase, but God. When the hero enters into the story, we're not saved by pursuing him. He pursues us. He comes to us. It's by grace that you have been saved. Not because of trying really hard to be really good. Paul tried that, didn't work out. He comes to us out of his grace. This is incredibly good news. Have you heard it? Do you know who Ron Popeil is? What a transition. Ron Popeil, y'all remember him? Infomercial guy? Come on. Nobody used to sit there when they were kids and watch infomercials? Okay. Ron Popeil. His chop Come on, the, like little thing and he'd like chop it and like perfectly dice everything. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to show you the greatest kitchen appliance ever. All your onions chopped to perfection. Without a single tear, or that his diplomatic, that, that he cut the cut vegetables perfectly. He, he said, "Slice a tomato so thin that it only has one side." Come on, y'all don't know who Ron Popeil. This is sad. Or his dehydrator, his jerky machine. I mean, come on, it's like hour-long things where he's just selling these things, and or his Showtime rotisserie. And is he selling these things? What would he say? As he gets closer and closer to the end, as he's telling you what you're going to get if you just send in your, your three installments of 39.95 or whatever it is, what would he say? He'd say, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Now, Ron appeals, but wait, the, there's more. Wasn't that great. <laughs> he, he was exaggerating quite a bit. What Paul has already told us is so incredible. That we were dead And we've been made alive again. He could have stopped there. That would have been enough for us. But in a sense, he's saying to us this morning, but wait, there's more. It doesn't end there. Verse six, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul here, he's speaking in the past tense. He's telling us of more things that are already true, that have already come true for us. Do you see it? We hear these words, and Peter was talking about this as well last week, right? That we have risen with him. We're, we're, We're seated with him, and we hear those things, and what do we say? Really? I mean, I feel like I'm sitting in a gym, and... Metal chairs and I don't really feel like I'm seated in the heavenlies right now. Having to listen to this guy and how can Paul say this? How can he say that it's already true of you and I if we're in Christ? You know what what about the pain that we're experiencing? What about the sorrows of this life, the brokenness, the broken relationships, the the temptations towards sin, a world that seems like it's falling apart, it seems too good. But in verses 5 and 6, did you see the common denominator of it all? What does it say in those three promises? What does it say? He, He made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us. With him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, what is the common denominator? But Christ. He is the common denominator. Jesus is the common denominator. Our union with him is the common denominator. Earlier, I mentioned that we we struggle to believe that we were really dead when Christ came to us. We, We want to think that we had something to offer. That we brought something to the table but the weird thing is, this is just how our how we work and just how broken we are at times. Is I think so often we also think that the reverse is true. We, we think that now that, that we're still, maybe we're not dead dead, but, but we think, well, I'm still like mostly dead right now, as I'm trying to live out as a Christian as I, I struggle with it, and, and we don't understand how radical it is, not that, just that we were once dead and are now alive, but now we are truly alive. And we're no longer dead. And as you sit there, you're not mostly dead. Don't believe the lie. Let's understand the incredible truth of this. And it comes to us this morning, as as I'm going to share it in two parts. That these things are true, that he's already made us alive, that he's raised us up, and that we're seated with him. First of all, it's objectively true. Okay. We want to think that this is objectively true. Now, what do I I mean by this? Uh, I'm kind of meaning technically. Um, I'm meaning Judicially. I'm meaning legally. In other words, Jesus, whenever he came to earth, he was our legal representative. Okay? Just in a way as Adam was our our representative at the beginning in our in the original sin, Jesus comes as our legal representative. And he he walks perfectly the life that we were supposed to live. And he goes to the death, the life, the, the death that we were supposed to suffer. And so we're united to him in those things. And so our being made alive, our being raised, our being seated in the heavenly places are ours. Why? Because Jesus has done them. Because our legal representative has gone and done them on our behalf. Okay? So you see how there's like this legal transaction going on. It's something that is now objectively true for us and so we ask ourselves questions like, are we righteous now? And what's the answer? Yes and no, right? Because we can think of the no, right? Uh, who, who, who in here is righteous? Who's, who in here is going to go forth living a perfect day today? Who in here can make it through the day without sinning? All right, no takers? All right. But at the same time, what the gospel tells us is that objectively at this moment, the God of the universe looks down upon you if you are in Christ. And he sees the perfection of his son. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your trespasses. He doesn't see your idolatry. He sees the perfection of his son. Be amazed. It should leave us in awe and wonder. Jesus' life was our life, his death, our death, his resurrection, our resurrection. And so in that way, we, we were brought back to life, we were raised, and we're seated with him in the heavenly places, but wait, there's more. Our union with Christ does not just mean some objective declaration, okay? It does mean that, but not just that. There are actual effects here and now in our life now that we can experience and we can know truly our union with him now. We can know that we have been brought back to life now. We can know that we've been raised with him now. We can know that we are seated in the heavenlies now. Tim Keller gives the illustration of many years ago when he was in the first pastorate. He was meeting with a teenage girl who was depressed and discouraged. And he was trying to encourage her. And in the midst of this, She said this. She said, yes, I know Jesus loves me. I know that he saved me. I know he's going to take me to heaven. She knows objective truth, right? But what good is it when no boy at school will even look at me? Did you hear it? She said she knew all the truths about being a Christian, but they were of no comfort to her. The attention or lack of it from a cute boy was far more consoling And energizing to her and foundational for her joy and self-worth and the love of Christ. Perfectly normal response of a teenager, right? Nevertheless, Keller says, it was revealing of how our hearts work. Jonathan Edwards, old dead theologian, would say that she had the opinion that Jesus loved her. But she didn't really know it. She had the opinion, but she didn't really know it. Christ's love was an abstract concept to her, while the love of these others was real to her heart. Is that you this morning? The way that Jonathan Edwards put it was this. There is a difference. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. Do you understand the difference? You can know that something's sweet, but if you've never tasted of it, you can't really know. Please hear me this morning. God certainly wants us to know the objective truth of the gospel. But he also desires that you and I know of the sweetness of, of our relationship with him. In Ephesians 3, he's going to say this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded up grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Does that sound like he's just wanting us to know something objectively true? He wants us to know it in, the, in our very bones that it's true. And while what is objectively true does not always feel subjectively so, you know, it doesn't already, we, we don't always feel it, God does desire for us to taste the sweetness of our relationship with him. And to know there, there are things that, that are true now of us and that through Holy Spirit, these things are accessible to us now. That we can know that we have truly been brought back to life. Even as, as Paul said, as we just read in Ephesians 3, what do he say? That he dwells in our hearts. That's something now. And he dwells in our hearts. Why? So that we can know. Not just know intellectually, but truly know to the depths of our soul and our very bones, we can know the love of Christ We've already spoken of how he's brought new life to us, right? And we need to know that we are no longer dead, but we are alive in Christ. For freedom, Christ has set you free. And this new life, understand, this new life doesn't just bring us a new position. It does bring us that, a new position before God. As those who are seen holy and righteous, for instance, It doesn't just bring us a new position, it also brings us a new disposition. We're able to live out a new life before him as those who are now alive again and are freed to follow him. And as those who have been raised up with him, who have been seated in the heavenly places, we can recognize that we are citizens of what? Citizens of of heaven. Do you know that this morning? Can you sense that in your life? Can you sense that, that there's something wrong with this world and it's, it's the times that's not where you belong? You should feel that way. That's normal, that's natural. What does he say again? Verse six, let's read it again. And he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We need to understand the incredible extravagance of what God has already given to us. Of that which we have right now. We need to understand the before, the incredible before of who we once were. But we also need to understand the after. And the after isn't, yes, there are things to come. We're just not talking about that right now this morning. The after we're talking about this morning are the things that are already in the past for you if you were in Christ. And those after things are true for you right now. Right now. Do you understand the glorious before? Do you also understand the incredible after, the promises, the things that are true for you right now? Now, as I was thinking, as I was studying on this passage, as I'm thinking about this newness of life, this this new birth that comes to us in Christ, I couldn't help but think of that man who came to Jesus in the night. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There are two types of people here this morning. You may not even know for certain which one you are. But there are two types of people. There are those who are still dead. And then there are also those who, like the Ephesians, were dead. Which one are you? Now, my my fear this morning, even as I preach, and I know this is likely true, the fact that there are some in here who think they're alive and they're actually dead. You see, they got the right knowledge, has worked its way into their brain, but they're still dead. It hasn't gone any farther than that. Oh, how that brings great angst to us this morning. There's others of you in here who may know that you're dead. Now, you might not would like to use that language. <laughs> you may not like use, our, use of our language of being dead this morning. But you'd say, yeah, I rebel against God. I don't really care what he has to say about my life. If you sense that you might be dead, now here's what's going to seem counterintuitive, because I've already said, what can dead people not do? Dead people can't do anything, right? And I'm about to tell you if you think you might be dead to do something. You might think that's crazy, but you know what? It's not, because here's the wonder. Don't miss this. I'm not God. I don't pretend for a moment to be, but God at this very moment through the power and the work of his Holy Spirit may be bringing one more of you to life right now, that he may be breathing new life into you. He may be calling to you and saying, come out. And this morning you have the opportunity, not because you're big enough or strong enough or powerful enough, but you have the opportunity to respond and hear him because you're hearing him now for the very first time, really. And you can say, I don't want to be dead any longer. I want this new life. Would you... Forgive me of my sins, for there are many. I want to believe in Jesus. You could do that this morning. Now there's many others, maybe most in this room, I don't know, who are already believers. These words are just as important for us. Remember, this is that's who they were written to, right? Those who were dead but are no longer. Are you growing, even this day, in wonder? Are you growing, even this day, in wonder of your before and after story? Are you growing in wonder of who you once were and what God has done for you by His grace while you are yet dead in your sins and trespasses that He came and rescued you? Do you understand this morning how grand, how great this morning the incredible grace of God is that you who were dead, dead, has been brought back to life. Cheer up. You're far worse than you ever dared imagine. You're more loved than you ever dared hope for. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, how I just pray you'd be at work in our hearts. Oh, for those in this room who may be dead, would you be bringing them and breathing new life into them through the work of your Holy Spirit, regenerating their hearts and bringing to them new life? And for those of us who were dead, Oh, would you help us to believe even more in this moment the wonder of your gospel? That we who were dead in our sins and trespasses, that you stepped in to our life and saved and rescued us, and and, and not just objectively so, but, but you are giving to us now wonderful, wonderful things as we find ourselves now alive. In Christ, raised up with him, seated with him, even at this very moment, oh, would you help? Help this truth not to just be objective in our minds, but that we might be able to taste the sweetness, even this day of the gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being present with us this day. We pray this all in your Matchless name. Amen.